Welcome to Actions Antidotes, your antidote to the mindset that keeps you settling for less. In our past culture, the culture that we're currently sunsetting, we'd often get the phrase that I've previously expressed that I hate, what do you do? And one of the reasons I tend to hate it is because it encourages us to define ourselves pretty simply by our job titles. But most people are quite a bit more complicated than just what you can get in a job title or say a few bullet points or something like that, even more complicated than what you'd see in a resume. Oftentimes people take on a lot of different types of pursuits, but oftentimes these pursuits are part of the same kind of whole personal brand. And that's something that I've been hearing about quite a bit more recently is that we all have a personal brand, a brand that really connects a lot of the things we do. My guest today, Liz Krupa, encapsulates this idea of having a personal brand that manifests in a number of different pursuits pretty much better than almost anyone else that I have encountered so far. Liz, I would like to welcome you to the program and quickly talk to you about all the pursuits that you kind of are involved in kind of toward the same goal of protecting the people, protecting the unprotected, as well as the ethics in the legal profession. Good morning. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. So first of all, Liz, it's an honor to have you on the program. And tell us about all these different endeavors, because you're in the trial advocacy, you're in the ethics commission, Special Olympics. They're all different places that you've kind of gotten yourself involved with. Yes. So by training and education, I'm a lawyer. I do mostly criminal defense, but I also do some ethics and internal investigation type work, white collar work. I serve on several boards and commissions. Two of the boards that I currently serve are NIDA, the National Institute for Trial Advocacy, which is a nationwide advocacy group that tries to help lawyers be better advocates, mm -hmm. and the Colorado Special Olympics, which is part of the larger national and international Special Olympics, which works with getting developmentally disabled people more recognition through sports and school, giving them the correct access to medical care and the importance of actually keeping your physical health up as well. So those are two of the nonprofit boards that I serve. And then I am also the chair of, of the Commission on Judicial Discipline for the state of Colorado, which is the entity that is the only entity really that looks at any rules of conduct for judges and whether those were violated makes recommendations to the Supreme Court as far as discipline. And then I'm also the chair of the Independent Ethics Commission, which similarly looks at any violation of the rules of ethics for elected officials. So numerous of those types of endeavors, I also mentor through Law School Yes We Can, which is a mentoring program that tries to bring young, interested people of color through college into the LSAT program through law school and helping them pass the bar. And we stay with them through their first several years and hope they stay in mentor as well. So the first question I need to ask you, given all this, is how busy are you? Do you have time for yourself? Do you have time to rest, laugh, play, all that stuff? Of course. <laughs> time management is, is something that luckily I was blessed with. And I do take time for myself to connect with people and even just have a downtime to read a book or go to bed early. So I manage my time efficiently, I would say. So on the grounds of time management, because I suspect that a lot of my listeners may struggle with that. I know I've struggled with that in the past. What do you think are the key mistakes that, since you're blessed with this really good time management that allows you to take on so many different initiatives, what do you think is the biggest mistakes that a lot of people you observe 
make, especially maybe some of these young potential lawyers that you're trying to get through the LSATs? What, yeah, what's the mistake that they tend to make in the time management or the one you observe the most frequently? Honestly, for me, it's more of task orientation. I try to make a list of at least weeks to you know months in advance of what I need and schedule deadlines that are somewhat fake deadlines, but they're important deadlines for me so that I have drafts or tasks that I've completed, at least for my professional job lawyering. As far as the commissions and boards, that's also something that is task oriented and I just try to calendar it. So I love and live by my calendar. For lawyers, I think one of the rule of thumb for lawyers is you bill six hours a day. That's in most firms, they require six hours. And it seems like it's hard Mm -hmm. to get to those six hours. The pandemic really helped with getting those six hours done. And really, it's, again, just trying to make a list of those tasks. Mm -hmm. That being said, you know, even if you get through two of the six that you had for the day, you still have to find some success in that. Yep. Um, it's yep. daunting sometimes when some task keeps reoccurring on your calendar daily, but um, you know, then you have to move it up and get it done earlier. So, you know, early start is always good as well. Yeah. I know that feeling of having the same task four or five days in a row. And then it comes on to the next week. I tend to do my weekly planning on Sundays and being like, oh my God, I really did not like last week. I was a week ago. I was sitting right here thinking, oh, how important it is to get this task done and I made very little progress on it. So <laughs> that happens. You have to extend yourself some grace too. that, you know, pat yourself on the back for what you did get done. Yeah. And how important is prioritization, by the way? Like if you have six tasks, knowing which one's the top priority or which two or three absolutely need to get done versus nice to haves or something like that. Well, that's critical. And that that's personal tasks too that have to fit in there. Um, You know, my mom used to have a day, you know, every week that she would do the bills and, you know, go through her checkbook and make sure that everything was accurate. And I just thought, gee, that's funny. I I wonder how many people today actually (laughs) have a day each week that they balance their checkbook and make sure everything's up to date and paid. So, you know, she was a good inspiration for me in that sense. But prioritization personally, as well as professionally, I think is where you have to look at things. Hmm. Nice. And so... Back to your kind of individual story, when did you first decide you wanted to become a lawyer and was kind of the ethics of the legal profession always on your mind or is that something that came about later in your life? I think I wanted to be a lawyer from about the age of seven. My father was a Denver sheriff and worked in the courthouse and he would take me to the courthouse sometimes and I would go into the initial advisement courtroom and sit there and watch advisements happen. And the judge was cute. It was a judge that was there for years. And Judge Crew would say, well, you know, at that time it was Espinosa. He said, Miss Espinosa, what do you think? Should I keep him in jail or should I let him go? And I think for every (laughs) single one, I was like, let him go, judge, let him go. (laughs) So, you know, early on, I think I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. What type of lawyer changed from time to time. But, you know, my dedication to having that degree help and serve some public good has always been there. And so it's interesting that you eventually became a defense attorney, given that you were saying, let him go, let him go. (laughs) Is that something that you'd always felt about our kind of justice system that how we like, do you feel like we over punish people in general? Or do you feel like it's just a fairness initiative and that the people on defense need to be well represented in the court of law? 
I think it's twofold. I, I do think that people need effective representation in criminal defense, as, as in you know divorces or any other field, and they're required to have effective assistance of counsel. How I feel about the justice system is definitely that there's an overrepresentation of people of color in our jails and prisons, that they're overpopulated for people with mental health issues, homelessness issues you know, socioeconomic issues and things like that. I understand, you know, that there are people that are a danger to society and, and there is a, you know, need or desire to lock them up, as people say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of our prisons are also private prisons. They're big money. So it's a little harder for me to say that there's uh, social justice in our criminal justice, but it's getting better. I mean, the pendulum mm-hmm. always swings, right? Like you used to be able to beat your wife. Well, now you can't. But now a woman can call and say that she was abused by a husband, spouse, boyfriend, date, and there doesn't have to be any physical evidence. And he's arrested and kept in jail for several days before he's allowed to even be released just on an accusation on a word. Yeah. Um, so those pendulums do swing and, and not always the right way, but they, they seem to start coming back eventually. So it's interesting from the standpoint of someone that would like to see that pendulum just like like if I had my way, I would take the pendulum and stop it or just kind of rip it off of its axis so it stops swinging and just get to this place where we kind of have this consistent idea of, you know, what the proceeding should be regardless of who someone is. Is there anything that, any kind of hope, anything that you're observing that could possibly get us to that point? Or do you feel like that there's a natural aspect of human nature that's going to keep swinging it back and forth, say from the you know, three strikes and all the kind of tough on crime laws of the 90s to stuff that's happening now that may be swinging it too far back the other way. And then eventually that backlash swinging it back. Is, is that just something that's natural part of human sociological nature that's just going to keep happening no matter what? It is. It's also just a matter of who we have in our legislature. I mean, Colorado has been pretty fortunate to have good legislation movements and a criminal defense bar that has really done a lot of work to lobby and have the right kind of policy people there with facts and historical data so that it's not, you know, it's not going in there with some sympathetic plea of some juvenile that was wrongly treated or wrongly convicted. But Many, many years of data and unfair treatment, such as felony murder. That that's you know one thing that comes to mind are juveniles that were held. You know they were sentenced to life without parole, and and those that kind of legislation is is definitely moving in the right direction, in my humble opinion. Mm-hmm. But it's also hard. You know if, if it was your family member that was affected by one of those juveniles, and you thought they were getting life in prison without parole, and now they're going back and letting some of these young people parole, you know, they have a very different view and, and that's a different thing. But as far as the pendulum, I think a lot of it is time, knowledge, definitely our access to information now, but also misinformation that we keep seeing, you know, people tend to see something on Twitter or see a feed somewhere and they they just believe it. There's not a lot of research or questioning of what we are fed now through the media. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting. That's something that I just listened to another podcast on the um, Tristan Harris, the Center for Humane Technology. He actually just recently interviewed the Facebook whistleblower and I'm completely blanking on her name, but the product manager that came out with the Facebook files and she had recommended a few, I think pretty reasonable fixes for some of this misinformation thing. And one of the things that I struggle with is that as soon as I hear someone saying, 
that there's a battle against misinformation. I hear censorship and I hear something that I naturally don't love, but her assessment was just some simple things like making it a little bit harder to just reshare something that resharing something shouldn't be just a matter of a click of a button and also some tweaks to the algorithm to put everything kind of like how our email is where it's just only by time as opposed to an algorithm that according to this episode now i'm taking this from her i'm not assessing that i know it people in facebook don't even know how this algorithm works because it's all that machine learning thing and one of the things i'm wondering is having us witness this having us witness almost anyone's witnessed people or even people with different information right because one of the problems with our current partisan divide is that we don't even have the same information we don't even have the same facts let alone the same interpretation of those facts which is never going to be the same what I'm wondering from this whole debacle is if people are going to be more likely to scrutinize their information. And a great example of that would be you go on Wikipedia, you look something up, but there's that little link that you see to the actual source. So instead of just saying Wikipedia is my source, my source is who Wikipedia cited. And you look at the article, make sure they're a credible source and make sure it makes sense to you before actually believing that. Do you see people putting more scrutiny into like what information they absorb and what information they believe and how they kind of represent it to other people in the public? I would love to say that that if there was that one change in algorithm, that that would be the issue, or if we just made it time-based, that that, that would solve it. I mean, it, you know, think back to, and, and you're younger than I am, but, you know, back in the day, we didn't have the internet to do all the searches. We would go to the library, we would have encyclopedias, but even that information was created and the content was created without full disclosure of all the facts, right? Like look at mm -hmm. just the education that, that we've all grown up with as to what America is. And it lacked a lot of Native American culture. It lacked a lot of Black culture. I mean, there's just numerous times that our the way our history has been written and our history has been taught has been selected for us and given to us. And, and none of us really thought to look deeper unless we knew that our piece of it was missing. So I think, you know, it's there are little fixes like that that will be imperative moving forward. But I think it's also one of those things where, you know, as far as the pendulum swinging so far left and so far right in our political stance and anger and movement mm -hmm. right now, you know, a lot of that is just trying to get those swing voters. I mean, this is, you know, people that have to take a far stance left or right because they're trying to get those fringe voters because otherwise the, the mainstream left or right are going to stay with them. So it's really just a battle of trying to get the fringe. And if that was taken away, if there were different types of, of ways that, that our um, elected officials could try to get those fringe voters, then, then we wouldn't have those issues as much as we do now. But there's, you know, there's extremist views. There always have been. That's mm -hmm. the beautiful part of this country is that everybody has the right to speak it. Yep. And I'll defend people's, you know, First Amendment right to my deathbed, hopefully beyond. But, you know, it just how we receive content, it's really more of just being aware of your content was selected for you. Even if mm -hmm. it's a site you always listen to or trust or a podcast you always trust, it's always good to listen to the other side. You might not like it, but you should always at least hear it. Well, it's interesting because I think a lot of people don't do that. Listen to multiple perspectives as well as dive a little bit deeper. And what it sounds like you're saying, because a lot of people like to go around thinking, whatever's new is making the sky fall, right? The sky's falling because of whatever this new development is, but it's not really that new. You know, it used to be the three major cable channels or whatever selecting the content for you. Now it's just an algorithm that Facebook 
may or may not understand based on your web search history or what your friends have shared with you and stuff like that. And that's just another thing. So it's really a matter of just being aware that something, some other entity selected this content for you and who knows what that means. I agree. (laughs) We should put that on a slogan. (laughs) You need to be a little shorter though. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing. It doesn't always work in our current culture, I guess, for something to be a long drawn out explanation. We live in the era of the 15 second TikTok video. So people might just see like, like who sent you this information or who gave you this information and One of the interesting things is that I've kind of tried to look at some information from all sides. And it's really interesting how even what is chosen. So people often talk about biases in articles and say, okay, well, this one presented like an evil looking picture of this politician. And that one presented that politician smiling and looking like he's hugging a baby or something like that. But it's also often what they choose to report on, what they choose to not report on. Precisely. I mean, there's, you know, politicians or people that have tried to run for office and they never got airtime and they were, you know, the different media channels were told, don't give them airtime, which is unfortunate, right? Because then we're not really hearing from a pool of candidates. We're hearing from the chosen elect of who they want us to hear from. Yeah. And sometimes we miss out on that voices. And this reminds me of another thing that oftentimes, so one of the problems that the polarization kind of comes from is this idea of like attracts like, and that can affect not just our polarization in politics, but also our business endeavors or any endeavor. You know, we're only talking to the people who look like us, think like us, whatever we decided, whatever is bringing you you, your comfort. What do you think is the key to having that level of comfort in your life, knowing you're not alone, while also still reaching out and looking for other perspectives, saying, okay, here's a person that's completely different than me over there, that had a completely different life, completely different culture, look completely different, probably a different generational divide, but I'm going to go talk to them because we need to go out there and we need to understand each other and we need to get those other perspectives so that we have a whole view of the impact of whatever we're doing in life. Well, for me, it comes as a little different base because I'm of Hispanic heritage and Native American heritage, and I don't look white. And my name was obviously different growing up. And so, you know, I faced a lot of that bias in different areas and arenas of my life growing up and even professionally. Mm -hmm. That being said, you know, I had the good fortune to go to George Washington High School during the time that there was the busing going on. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't, didn't live in a community or go to school in a community where it was everybody looked like me and everybody had the same background as me. You know, I grew up Roman Catholic and I grew up right by the Jewish Community Center. I had friends that had bought mitzvahs and I was kind of jealous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I think exposure is that key, right? And, and that's on parents, that's on schools, it's on sports teams to really kind of encourage that understanding and inquisition or inquisitive nature of people to really try to understand the differences in people. And it, it just compliments you. I mean, Having friends that are different from you or having a social circle, a professional circle, mentor, mentee that that is different from you, that's that's a godsend. You know, I, I wouldn't be where I am right now if I didn't have not only some old white guys that have definitely mentored me, but also people of color and, and different genders that have guided me through to give me different perspectives. And a lot of people struggle to work through the discomfort. And there's just going to be, especially when people first started, if someone's really only hung out or hung around with 
different versions of themselves, surround yourself with yourself, there's going to be an initial discomfort. What do you think people need to do to get over this discomfort and saying, okay, this person's going to have a completely different perspective. They're probably going to say something that I completely disagree with at some point in time in our conversation. But as you said before, the beauty comes in it once you've gotten all those perspectives and you understand it from a much broader and deeper sense. Volunteer in your community. You know, I mean, that's one thing with like Special Olympics, right? Like we deal with developmentally disabled folks. I worked for years with physically disabled youth and adults trying to adapt sports equipment to get them active, skied with National Center for the Disabled. You know, people that are disabled face the same thing as people that look or sound different from you. Mm -hmm. Muslims walk around wearing, you know, or women that wear the hijab. I mean, there's things that make you uncomfortable because they're different. And they also make you uncomfortable because you don't understand it. There's a base assumption when people see that sometimes. And I'm not trying to call out anybody as racist or ignorant. I just grew up in a different way and with different exposure, which I'm fortunate to have, which also, you know, this inquisitive base of, you know, I want to know more and I'm going to question things, Mm -hmm. which also helps. But I I think, you know, I always try to get people to volunteer in, in their community, whether it's with, and with youth, it's just easier. People have a much easier time dealing with disadvantaged youth, which are usually, you know, youth of color or, you know, from a home that has suffered different issues, whether it's criminal issues or mental health issues, big brother, big sister, you know, whether it's volunteering for, for physically disabled kids or, or special Olympics. I think that's a beautiful way to start. It's definitely something that people should be doing, giving back to the community, but doing it with youth is much easier and less threatening to somebody to try to get into that arena than it is another adult. Mm -hmm. And so you said that you faced some discrimination, you know, coming up, being Hispanic, being of native heritage. Does that discrimination that you faced, that life experience, did that impact kind of your feelings today, the cause that you're taking on with a lot of these initiatives where you're defending people that need defense, you're helping out people that need the Special Olympics and some of the other ethical causes that are kind of embedded in all of your endeavors? I think how it made me feel definitely made me more of an advocate for people that aren't always seen or heard. And definitely, you know, professionally, as I was getting older and and breaking in, you know, to the legal arena, which is definitely, you know, not for women of color necessarily. Mm -hmm. I think anytime I have felt pushed down or a door shut or told no, or, oh, that's cute little girl, maybe you should try to do this instead. It's just made me more determined to get through that door, more determined to succeed. So I don't think it's why I did it, but it helps me as far as empathy and understanding how that makes you feel when -hmm. somebody sees you and, and, you know, and I, I mean, something as simple as my mom and I went to a shop, I separated from my mom and, and my mom is, is of Hispanic descent, but she's very light skinned, you know, reddish blonde hair. Mm-hmm. Our features may be alike, but I, I look more more like my dad, dark skin, dark hair at the time. <laughs> yep. Yeah. You know, I was followed through the store and, and this woman was watching me like a hawk. And she just said, you know, why are you in here? What are you doing in here? You have to buy something. And that when my mom came over, it was very different. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it was, you know, riding on the school bus and kids would, you know, say, oh, I bet you were born in the gutter. When did you learn how to speak English? Da, 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 da. You know, burrito yeah. breath, like the things, you know, that mm-hmm. they would say. And yeah. I just thought, where'd I get that? Like, How did I earn that? And then, you know, as I was getting, you know, through college, DU was a great place for college. I didn't really get much 
kickback there, but they also have a very big international community, which is nice. Mm-hmm. But just even starting in the practice of law, when I started as a public defender, I saw many more people of color and women in the practice of law in criminal justice in the state system. When I went to the federal system, there were less. When I worked at the SEC, I worked there almost, I don't know, nine years, 10 years. I only saw one woman litigating with me on the opposing side and never a person of color through the Securities and Exchange Commission Denver office I did, but not when I was traveling across the country trying cases. So, you know, I think some of it is representation. Some of it is seeing people that look like you and understanding that you can do it, having people that have gone before you to break that glass ceiling, so to speak, but also just people that are different in a community giving back so that they can see that professional people of color or women or different genders or socioeconomic backgrounds, you know, still can give something of value to the community. Now, is this an issue that you see as having gotten better over the course of the last couple of decades? Or do you feel like it's kind of still in the same place that it was when you were a little kid being accused of having burrito breath and all these other baseless accusations given to you by the people in that store? You know, it's funny because I think everybody thought there were great strides, right? That we were Mm -hmm. becoming this, you know, much more cohesive nation with people understanding cultural differences and, you know, celebrating holidays and things like that. And then, and then you have, you know, the Trump era come along and then there's bad hombres and rhetoric about, you know, COVID came from the Chinese and then Mm -hmm. all of this kind of what people were like, well, wait a minute, how, how did we get here? Where, where were all these people? I thought we had come so far. No, we didn't really come very far. There might've been policies and changes. And even now, you know, people love to talk diversity and inclusion, equity. Really, that's just, it shouldn't be a talk. It should be a walk. If people really want to make the changes that reflect the community at large, then those need, there need to be policies in every company, agency, government, firm, whatever it is, school, that when they hire, they're going to hire diverse candidates, that they're going to look at the teachers they have. They're going to look at the lawyers they have in their firm. They're going to look at the corporations they are going to look at the outside counsel that they hire. And they're going to make sure that there is always a person of color that has a meaningful role in everything that they do. And if they're going to reach out, companies are going to reach out, they're going to reach out to the mailroom. They're going to reach out to their administrative pool and somebody that's worked very hard that maybe isn't educated. They're going to talk to them and see if they can bring them up, what they can mm-hmm. do to help them get educated, how they can reward them for their service. I think those kind of things are what diversity and inclusion should be about, those policies, not talking about, oh, we have to have gender fluid bathrooms and we have to make sure that we don't talk to people based on you know their cultural background or you know gender or anything like that. I think that's just common decency. Mm-hmm. That's just something that we hopefully all have and, and continue to understand that we don't, you know, talk to people about their kinky hair. Or we don't, things like that. I think those are just common decency and, and etiquette. The rest of it really need to be mandatory policies, in my humble opinion. <laughs> now, you also talked about how when you face this discrimination you kind of, it strengthened your resolve to succeed. It didn't necessarily tear you down or I don't know, maybe you had an emotional response, but in the end, it strengthened your resolve. You became even more resolved to succeed. Do you feel like that's a a concept that a lot of people can bring any listener in their own pursuits can bring into their, whether they're starting a business or starting anything else, you're going to always face setbacks. You're always going to face challenges. You're always going to face people who tell you no. How would someone go about 
strengthening that muscle within your mind of saying, okay, no, or a setback or someone telling me that I'm stupid or whatever is only going to strengthen my resolve to succeed at whatever I'm trying to succeed at. So I think some of it is, you know, you touched on it earlier that, you know, people feel alone. So there's comfort in surrounding yourself with people that are like you, because then there's not a challenge to who you are to grow or or a different Mm -hmm. opinion or idea. When it's somebody, you know, I, I go out to charter schools, the the no school left behind that got left behind and reorganized his charter. I, I go out to mm-hmm. the schools and, and I talk to the kids. I talk to them about knowing their rights because they're largely persons of color that are contacted by the police more frequently. And so I'll talk to them about what the police are allowed and not allowed to do generally. Yep. You know, sometimes I'll hand out business cards and say, if, if they really start to bug you, call me. Mm-hmm. But the other part of what I talk to them about is, you know, d- don't give up on your dreams. I mean, there there's some realistic measures to that, but I'll, you know, I'll talk to fifth, sixth, seventh graders and say, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, and there's some very small kid <laughs> yep. of stature that says, oh, I want to be an NBA player. Well, you know, <laughs> you can work on that, but let's also look at what other types of jobs you could do or other things you could do within the NBA or, or the sports field that might get you close to that, but maybe not playing, but still a part of that piece part of that family or kids say, I want to be an FBI agent. I want to be in the CIA. Okay. Well cut out your social media because they're going to talk to everybody that you've ever spoken to everybody you've ever gone to school with. They're going to look at every social media. And I know you think Snapchat goes away, but it doesn't actually go away. There's just so much information that, that they need to know to really think about moving forward. And mm-hmm. not every you know high school counselor is the, the great one that says you can. In fact, there's several high school counselors that'll say, Maybe you should look at junior college. Maybe you shouldn't look at actually mm-hmm. college, or maybe you shouldn't be a lawyer because of this, that, and the other thing. So I think, you know, I think some of that is just having the right support system, yep. you know, whether it's family, mentors, a teacher that you like, a friend that has your back to really talk it out and say, okay, this is, this is the door I'm facing. And sometimes that door shuts and won't open regardless how much you kick, run, jump, yeah. because it's meant to push you in a different direction, in the right direction. But I think ultimately when people say something or do something to try to keep you down, it's harder on your soul. It's harder on your confidence to let that be what pushes you down than Mm -hmm. it is to say, okay, I'm going to take that as constructive criticism, or I'm going to take that as I'm not the right fit for you, but you're not going to deter me from what I want to be or where I want to go. So I think, you know, it almost feels easier to give up sometimes when you hit roadblocks or you hit, you know, a failure or, you know, you don't pass the bar or you don't pass the LSAT, mm-hmm. you can take it again and you can keep taking it and you can try different things and, and reach out to different sources to try to help you. And you'll feel better about that than if you just give up. And if someone out there doesn't have that support system, let's say someone just unfortunate, maybe their family is not supportive or they haven't met that right circle of friends. They don't have that right mentor. What should someone go about doing to find that right support system? Because I think you're right that having a mentor or community friends, people that are really rooting you on can really mean a lot to your pursuits. A lot of that is, it just depends on what that pursuit is. But some of my you know, mentors or even mentees haven't been through the Hispanic bar or Hispanic chamber or the women's bar or women's groups. Uh, sometimes it's been a common interest kind of friend mm-hmm. that you meet, whether it's through a yoga class or through a gym class or knitting class, something like that. And just putting yourself out there, you have the opportunity to talk outside of whatever it is you're you're doing together as an activity. 
for young men, it's always it's always easier to try to get young boys to talk when they're actually doing something. If you sit across the table from you know a teenage boy or a preteen boy, they're never going to just stare at you and talk. They don't talk that way. But if you put them in a car, you go play basketball, you know, you do something that's active where they're not, you know, they're not having to look at you. You can engage in all these types of conversations. And I, I only learned that because I was a single mom of two boys. But <laughs> <laughs> But I do think that, you know, some of it is on you to get out there. And, and, and if you're super shy and it's easier to try to find like a, an online book group or, you know, something that gives you a little bit more privacy, then I think you can try to do those things. Mm-hmm. But I think there's always a way to try to find a mentor or somebody. And, and I, when I, you know, when I mentor people, I try to talk to them too about networking, right? Like it's not, Mm -hmm. I need a job or I want this, or I'm trying to do that. It's really, you know, you, the more you network, the more you talk to people and you get to know things about them. So when I take my mentees to any event or any networking kind of event, I say, okay, you know, I I want you to have a card. I want you to have your spiel about, you know, who you are and how you're going to get it. And then the person that you're talking to, I want you to get three things about them. And it's not Mm -hmm. their age or where they work or how many kids. I want you to find out, you know, their favorite book or the last movie they saw or, you know, what their passion is as far as outdoors, if there is one, gardening, dogs, you know, whatever it is. That way, after they've met people, if they felt like there was somebody that had a good connection or somebody they would like to meet further, then I have them contact that person and say, hey, I, I met you. I was really impressed by X or Y. And I would love to meet and talk about this, da, 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 da. And when you listen and you take something that somebody says, and then you say, I really heard you and I would love to meet with you and talk more. It's just so, you know, that person is eight times more likely to meet with you and they don't always, but let's say you meet three people that you think can Mm -hmm. help you somehow, or even if it's just one time having coffee, it doesn't have to be, you know, every month you meet them, but just listening and pulling one thing from what they tell you can really be a connection, Mm -hmm. even if it's not something that's similar to you. Yeah. And I know exactly how it feels because I have seen the difference in my own feeling between hearing a kind of generic copy paste, hey, we met at this, let's talk versus I remember. And in the case of my current pursuits, I remember hearing about your podcast. I listened to an episode and I liked it and I'd like to talk to you more does come across quite a bit more different. And I'm wondering also part of it with the whole follow-up needs to be a little bit of patience. I actually literally maybe 12 hours ago yesterday evening, just heard back from someone who I'd originally reached out to on September 16th. And today for reference is October 20th. And at some point, at some point in time, usually after a week or two, I think most of us tend to, I don't want to say write off, but used to tend to kind of forget and move on and go on to something else. But sometimes it is patience because especially if you go into a networking event where a lot of people there may be busy, sometimes they have a lot of things going on and it takes them, they have like their labeled important emails and it takes them a week or two to get through them all because they're behind. It happens. Not everyone manages their time as well as you do. with time management, I have to tell you there, you know, I'll flag emails so that I go back to them as I'm kind of going through what, you know, what is the first, first priority. And, you know, I, I love it because I'll, I'll call people, you know, and their, their voicemail will say, I will get back to you in 24 hours. And I'm like, oh man, lawyers never give hours. (laughs) Yeah. It's like telling the judge, I just need five more minutes. And then five (laughs) hours later, the judge is like, really? Yeah. Yeah. You know, one last question. I mean, all of that is just really dangerous for people. 
but I do think there is some patience and I, and I will tell somebody if they're really interested in meeting that person, you know, if you don't hear back in, in three weeks, maybe a month, you know, try one more time because there are times that it gets lost in the shuffle. I mean, some of these people I'm sure have three to 5,000 emails a day. So to have one that they're going to automatically respond to right away is not always because they didn't want to. Sometimes it's, you know, just other things that they, they had to do. Yeah. And there's a lot going on for sure. One other topic I want to make sure that we cover on this is the idea of legal ethics, something that you've been quite a bit involved with. Tell us, first of all, a little bit about what drove you into getting not just into the public defender, the trial advocacy, the, you know, protecting some of the people that are not seen or heard in our community, but also the ethical component of our legal profession. When I was in law school, I was clerking for a judge in Denver district court. And, you know, like I said, my dad was a sheriff and I was fully aware of some of the injustices in Mm -hmm. our criminal justice system. Um, Also aware of some of the police brutality issues and, you know, bad cops, you know, lump it in, in one word. But I have to say that I When I first started doing public defense work, the Colorado public defender system is statewide. So they do a boot camp training and you have to, you know, practice your skills amongst your peers. And then you go into court and you start defending people. Mm -hmm. And the, when you first start as a criminal defense attorney, at least in the public defender's office, they they have you do county court cases and, and it's just, you know, you're in court every day. It's all day, you know, multiple clients, you're running to the jails to see clients and you're meeting people that are, you know, generally pretty broken right? Like, mm-hmm. They don't always have a support system. They're homeless. They have mental health issues. So there was a lot of education for me in terms of what resources there were, social workers, different things to help even me learn about different mental health afflictions or addiction issues. Mm-hmm. So I think you know a lot of it for me was having to become more competent to be able to serve the people that I was trying to help. And in doing so, understand what options there were for helping them. And then you start realizing that there really isn't a lot. Mm-hmm. That if, you know, somebody doesn't have a family that can help pay for it, it's, it's much harder for them to deal with mental health issues and stay on the straight and narrow. It's harder to, you know, have them address, you know, any affliction that they have, much less, you know, come back to court on time. Mm-hmm. So I was part of, in Denver, a, a program that started the first drug court which was really to try to keep our prisons full of people that just had addiction issues. So if if you were caught with a simple possession, you know, you weren't dealing, you didn't have multiple prior felonies, you would come through this drug court. And the reason that it worked is because everybody that, that was there from probation to the district attorneys, to law enforcement, judges, you know, everybody that was involved in that system was well educated as to addiction and recovery issues. So, you know, if somebody got put out on probation, if they had hot UAs, it wouldn't automatically revoke probation. We'd just snap, put them in prison. There would mm-hmm. be a series of incentives and some you know, punishments to try to help people succeed and not. And then there would be a drug court graduation where somebody finished. You might see them again. But you know, ultimately, it was those types of recovery courts or mental health courts that are starting to surface in, in more of, I would say, the front range areas. It's harder on the Western Slope because there's not as much treatment available. Mm-hmm. But there, you know, those types of recovery courts or even veterans court that started, you know, things like that, that I think have really helped the criminal justice system. So for me, like it was really, you know, learning that competency to be able to effectively represent somebody. And then after I was at the SEC, you know, and looking at other types of ethical issues that companies 
you know, have to be fair and, you know, how they report their financials and market manipulation and all these other things, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Learning a lot about that type of practice and what, you know, was not necessarily, I mean, sometimes it was criminal, but sometimes, you know, it was just a regulatory thing. You know, you just kind of get used to applying these laws and regulations and, and things that people that want to play in this field or this mm-hmm. world are held by. When I left the SEC, I went to the Office of Attorney Regulation in Colorado, and I had volunteered on the Unauthorized Practice of Law Committee, which is one of the committees that attorney regulation has under the Supreme Court. And I, you know, it was really people that were practicing law that shouldn't be practicing law that, you know, people that were sending out these flyers to businesses saying, hey, you know, you got to, you have to do this and that and da, 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 and pay us and we'll do it for you. And it was just a form mm-hmm. that comes out, right? Or, you know, paralegals that overstep, things like that. And so when I started working at Attorney Reg and I started having to, you know, interview and and actually take lawyers to court that violated the rules of professional conduct, I was sometimes astounded at what Mm -hmm. lawyers did. I mean, I just, I was shocked that lawyers would do this. And I thought, you got to be kidding me. Like, we should be held to a higher standard. Like, our clients entrust us with their lives. And if you're, you know, not following these rules, then you either shouldn't have that license, you should have a timeout. Or conversely, right, especially in Colorado's attorney regulation office at the time I was there, it was also social working, right? So if mm-hmm. lawyers had uh, drug or alcohol problems or mental health problems or lawyers that were starting to see signs of dementia, like the, the office would try to help. There's a Colorado attorney mentoring program that is trying to help with some of that so that some of these newer lawyers that were coming out and getting hired, not getting hired at a firm and would hang a shingle and start their own firm could actually have somebody to guide them through that as opposed to just starting a firm and then being a foul of the rules because not everybody reads the rules, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, working there really helped me. And now I work with lawyers that get accused of misconduct. I defend them. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, just again, lack of time management skills or lack of accounting skills, yep. yeah, <laughs> things like that. And then I was appointed by different governors to serve on the Independent Ethics Commission and on the Commission on Judicial Discipline. And it's the same thing. I mean, there's just a set of rules that if you want to play in this arena, you are bound by and you take an oath to do it. And if you're not going to follow those rules, you know, these commissions, you know, aren't there to hammer everybody. We're not here to make sure that every judge, you know, doesn't get retained Mm -hmm. or goes down or something like that. It's really the only agency, the only commissions, the only organization that can clear them as well, right? So especially Mm -hmm. when it's an election year and and people are making tons of complaints to the Independent Ethics Commission, if there's a basis for it and it moves forward and there's a hearing, then those facts are heard and it plays out and the commission makes a decision. If there's things that have gone afoul, then, you know, there's a decision against the elected official. If there really isn't that proof, then that elected official is cleared. Similarly for the judges, there's allegations we look at in them. If it flushes out, then there's some kind of discipline, sometimes yeah. public, sometimes not. But if it, you know, if there isn't anything there, then that judge is cleared of that misconduct. So, you know, I think it's, you know, you mentioned kind of policing the police or holding yeah. people accountable. You know, that rings true through everything that I do. I mean, as a as a criminal defense attorney, I, I make sure that, you know, the, the cops did it right. They didn't pull any fast ones, make up evidence. You know, we didn't have an O.J. Simpson, you know scenario. But we also, you know, have to make sure that that the judges are making rulings according to the law and that, you know, people are being treated fairly in in the jails. So, Mm -hmm. you know, similar with, you know, holding our judges accountable and our elected officials accountable, our lawyers accountable. 
I think it's really, for me, you know, when people talk about transparency, you know, that there's so much talk about transparency these days. And I think that's a beautiful thing that people like to talk about it. I think that is that part of questioning everything and wondering if the information you're getting is right and what you're being told that people are doing if they're doing it right. And and I don't mean to be like skeptical or, or conspiracy theorist in, in terms yeah. of questioning, but I think, you know, the more transparent something appears, the more faith people have in it. So, you know, I, mm-hmm. I love our courts. I love our system of justice, but I also demand kind of that higher justice. I want to make sure that if it's being done, it's being done right for the right reasons mm-hmm. and not affecting one population more than another, that our courts have the integrity that they should have. Yeah. And I try to hold myself to that same accountability. Well, it's interesting is it sounds like a few concepts here that are actually in our founding documents for our nation, the right to a fair trial, the idea of rule of law, that if the law applies to one person, it applies to everyone equally, and also kind of trying to maintain the integrity of your profession, that you're doing a service. And that's interesting because anyone out there that's starting their own business or starting their own initiative, you're providing a service as a service you're probably trying to provide to some group of people, even if it's just a product. And you have to maintain the integrity of that. And usually in most organizations, that takes the form of some form of QA, QC, like quality assurance, quality control. And this sounds like the the legals profession, if you take it from like one person out to like an entire industry, that's the your industry's version of that quality control, making sure that every lawyer is acting on good faith so that when you're defending people, when you're giving people that right to an attorney, right to a, a fair trial, that they're getting it properly based on the ethics and also mental condition of the lawyers themselves. Well said. <laughs> that, that is awesome. So I loved hearing your story, loved hearing about how your personal experiences drove you to a specific profession, a specific mission. It's more than just a profession. It's a mission. It's a service that we're all providing, how we can all go about managing our time better by prioritizing our tasks, listing them out, and also how we can all overcome the challenges, setbacks, and the negativity that will often, it's kind of astonishing to me that no matter what someone tries to do, you're going to get negativity. You're going to get a naysaying, even if it's something as friendly as possible, someone's going to say, you should be doing this. Someone's going to think they know better for your life. So how we can all go about finding that resolve, keeping that resolve, and pushing forward with our endeavors. Liz, I would like to thank you so much for joining me today on Actions Antidotes. And I would like to thank all the listeners out there and encouraging you all to manage your time better and also use the negative, the naysaying that you get. And as long as you understand your mission, as long as you have this core mission at heart and find ways to strengthen your resolve, hopefully through a good mentor and a good community of people that support you. Definitely. Thank you so much. Thank you again. And all you listeners out there, tune back to Actions Antidotes for more interviews with people who have followed their passions and found a way to make progress on the things that they most care about. 